This episode of HBR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com. Get 15% discount on all shared hosting with the offer code HPR15. That's HPR15. Better web hosting that's honest and fair at anhonesthost.com. Hello, Hacker Public Radio listeners. This is Inskius. I'm going to tell my story of how I got into Linux. But first I should tell you how I came into computing. But long before I got into computing, I got into computers. So I might as well start there. Uh, The first computer I got into, I guess, was some government-run machine keeping track of the citizens of Sweden. Since 1947, we've had national universal personal identity numbers in Sweden. And 1947 is quite a long time before I was born, and a time where there were very few computers anywhere in the world. Nowadays, these identity numbers are used everywhere. Basically, they work as primary keys in databases and across databases. Register yourself as customer in a shop or on a site and you just leave your identity number and they usually can retrieve your address, check your credit ability, etc, etc. There is no escape. So I got into computers from a very early age. Someone else did the computing, though on my data. The time I was born, which was in the early 60s, I suppose these uh, different registers, etc., databases were actually in computers to a large extent. I'm not sure. So I don't can't give you the exact year when I got into a computer the first time. Uh, incidentally, a computer is not called a computer in Swedish, but datamaskin, which literally means data machine. Though these days we call it dator. But the name in Swedish does not give any association to computing anything. I think we are more than ever on this track of being computed by something or someone else. Fast forward from my childhood. I suppose I was a typical person growing up in the 60s and 70s. Of course hearing about computers but hardly ever seeing one except on TV and film. I remember that in school, maybe around 1975, we did a study visit to the local car factory and saw their computer department. There were machines with visible magnetic tape drives, which was that typical look of a computer that you had seen on TV. The guy working at the computer department also proudly displayed disk memories that were so fast. That was understandable for us, analog teenagers since we had vinyl LPs and singles and cassette tapes so we could understand the different access methods between tape and disc. The computers were big machines in cool rooms and compared to a factory workshop or an office the computer room was a kind of odd place. Um, I also remember seeing punch card machines and telex machines when I visited my parents' workplaces, but I've never used any of those uh, 
older types of technology. I remember my younger brother borrowing a Pong console from a friend sometimes in the 70s, I think. And uh, Pong was quite fascinating, but not that exciting, to be honest. I didn't think so. And I don't think we saw it as a computer. It was more of a gadget connected to the TV. And back then I didn't know anyone who had the early PCs like, for example, the Apple II or game consoles. In Sweden there was a popular computer called ABC80 built by the television manufacturer Luxor. And they uh, jumped on the fast expanding home computer market. Though most people did not have a computer. I had no interest in computers Maybe because no one ever showed me anything fun or constructive to do with them. So I came into computing not from an interesting technology or programming or anything, but rather from utility. And that is, of course, what most people do, I think. And back in the 70s and 80s, it was people came into computing, for example, for accounting or document processing. That was what brought non-geeks to the personal computer. So before I had a computer, I edited my texts, which were like uh, essays or reports or something, the old-fashioned way. I wrote by hand and literally cut and pasted together pieces of paper in order to reorder the text. So I usually started writing a draft with pen and paper. Uh, and when I rearranged them a bit and changed around, they were rather messy. So I wrote a new draft with pen and paper. It was kind of a good way to edit because one could spread out a large number of notes and pages on, say, a big table and get a great overview. I don't think I can get that great overview uh, even on like a 22-inch screen today. And those documents were about five to 15 pages long. So they were not books and they were not letters. I never made the first draft on a typewriter as I was not a good typist. And to this day, I still don't know how to touch type, I must confess. So after all this cutting and reordering, I wrote it out on a typewriter and um, we had correction fluid, I think it's called in English. We called it after the brand that was everywhere, Tipex. And we call it tipexing when we paste it over with this white fluid on the text and uh, rewrote it on the typewriter. And uh, maybe I even had to do another cut and paste and write it out on typewriter one more. It was kind of awkward way of working and um, especially if there were footnotes and so but if the text was okay and it was possible to photocopy it and it looked nice for handing out at seminars etc then that was the final version in 1987 or 88 i got access to a computer at the department where i was a student And that was helpful for editing text and lists of references, footnotes were easy to create. Um, So that was my first time I used a computer. And I was writing a sort of thesis and I realized that the computer would help me a lot. So that's how I entered computing, word processing and printing. 
And I was a lousy typist, so I wrote the first drafts on paper, pen, etc. And then I borrowed the computer and uh, wrote down the latest version of a chapter or something on uh, my own personal floppy disks. There were 540k floppy, those soft floppy disks. So I was kind of straggling between like old technology and new technology. It was like transition time between uh, writing by hand typewriting and word processing on a computer and uh, I think many of my colleagues and friends did that just that back then they first wrote by hand and then they put it into the computer the computer room at my department back then had one or two IBM portable PC that was the model it was called and they also had a few compact Macs, Mac Plus and Mac SE, which was a Mac with two floppy drives. And those were the smaller floppies that was 800k. The person who showed me how to use a computer belonged to the PC camp. There were like two camps even back then. So I was talked out of using Macs, which anyway looked like toys. Grown-ups should of course use IBM and MS-DOS not toying around with those silly little Macs. So I spent a few months at that IBM portable with two floppy drives writing in WordPerfect. I learned to hate it. Jumping around in text with arrows was counterintuitive for someone used to the old analog way of putting my pen directly at the place I wanted to write or wanted to erase something. And I was starting this IBM computer was quite annoying. I had two floppies and one was a drive A, one was drive B. And I was going to give some commands to just get the thing started. And for a non-geek like me, that was not fun. The paper I wrote or essay or whatever we, we would call it, may, re, may, re, may it rest in peace. It turned into 70 pages, including references. So it was still way better to may write it on a MS-DOS machine in WordPerfect than in <laughs> writing by hand and uh, typewriting it. But it was still rather frustrating. I saw other students and faculty that shamelessly worked at those toys called Macs. And they seemed perfectly happy. The screen was much smaller, but it was a lot better. It displayed black text on white background, just like paper. And the MS-DOS was, of course, black background and white text. And a little bit of color. And the Mac had a mouse and a desktop, as it was called. It made more sense to me, an analog-minded person with no pretensions of becoming computer savvy. And the Macs also had those better floppies. And the Mac users also had an image writer too. That was a matrix printer that printed out the fonts. How awesome wasn't that? Uh, later that department I was at got a laser printer connected to the network. So we all could get those really fancy printouts. And that seemed like magic almost. And it, you could just write a letter and it looked printed. Uh, and maybe the content got less important than the looks. Uh, I don't know. Um, later that year, still 1988, I bought a Mac Plus. It was rather expensive, but students and teachers could buy at half price. So, But still, compared to what we get now for the same amount of money, it was very expensive. But I could do some work from home. 
and bring a floppy to the department to print out. I didn't have a printer. Uh, the operating system of that Mac Plus was System 5.0, and there was no such thing as Mac OS back then. It was just called System. Uh, and a copy of HyperCard was included with every Mac, but I only had one megabyte of RAM, so I couldn't run it. And I used Word, Microsoft Word 3.0, I think it was, for word processing. And it was a great application, and I used Word for many years. So, from 1988, well, apart from the Word part, I was one of those uh, so-called fanatic Mac users uh, that... Uh, People that use DOS and Windows usually uh, called us fanatic. So I suppose because we were just stubborn. I studied and worked at some mixed Max Windows places over the years. And there were always some who tried and also often succeeded in routing out everything not Windows. I've also seen that in the schools my children have attended. And I suppose most of you have had the same experience I did not learn anything about free software in those years, but I learned much about the evils and the sheer stupidity of Monopoly. There were, of course, fanatic Mac fanboys, but I often felt the Windows users were the more fanatic, i.e. narrow-minded. So my family was a Mac-only household from the late 80s up until the mid-2000s. And work and school, we all had to use Windows at times, I used almost every Macintosh operative system version from System 5 up to Mac OS 10, 10.6. And I even got a copy of the public beta of Mac OS 10, which was the first version they issued, which actually cost money. And it was uh, sent by on CD. I still think I had that CD. And it cost money, which was quite greedy of Apple, but they were still in rather dire economic straits back then, I think. Uh, It wasn't easy to be a Mac user, by the way. There were very few shops who sold them. Uh, So you really had to seek them out to get them. The internet I didn't have at start, of course, but I first used it in 1994, I think, but then only as email at my work. And I got internet access in my home in 1997, I think. It was a 33K modem and Netscape Netscape Communicator, was that the name of the browser back then? 3.0. I remember you had to buy Netscape, but usually you got it if you got uh, some kind of contract with the ISP. And I even started doing some HTML. That was not programming, but it was uh, kind of editing the looks of text. So that was what I've done even with pen and paper, in a sense, a long time ago. In the early 2000s, I did some programming in Java, which was fun, but I sort of dropped out of it. So I haven't really coded anything in more than 10 years, uh, except HTML, CSS, a little for hobby or helping friends with their sites. And by this time in the early 2000s or late 90s, I've heard of this cool thing called Linux. And now finally we come to the Linux bit of this episode. And I was a bit curious because I had Macs at home, but uh, 
I didn't know I didn't get or understand how to install Linux or use it. It seemed very puzzling and I didn't have any spare computer to test it on either. I'd installed Mac OS 10 on on a, like I had an iMac, uh, the old ones, uh, colorful ones, the little ones, and we had an iBook too, the clamshell ones. So they ca- had came had come with Mac OS 9, but I had installed 10 on them. I also knew that Mac OS 10 was built on BSD, which also was something very geeky, stable, advanced, and well tested. Finally, in 2004, I think it was, uh, we bought a PC with Windows XP. And why? After all these years of struggling to have a Mac household, and the Macs were coming back then, and they were getting more popular and easier to find. So why get a Mac or get a Windows PC? And I have to blame my children for that because they wanted to play games. They wanted to use MSN Messenger, etc., etc. And furthermore, some websites did not work with Mac. So we adults in the family had to give in. However, I made a small partition on that computer to later try out Linux sometime. And I was tired of the cost of Macs. And uh, also there was like a growing Steve Jobs cult, which I found really sad and boring. So I thought this free, as in beer, awesome geeky system called Linux. I could put it on standard hardware, so much I'd grasp. And it was very tempting to try it. Um, Because now I had like a PC, uh, not a Mac. And I wasn't sure how to go about this with Linux. I think I had that empty partition or used it for other stuff for one or two years. I'm not sure. And I I read about Linux in some PC magazines, Mac magazines, but it just puzzled me. Putting a whole operative system on a hardware not specifically designed for the system. That sounds great, but how? Well, one day I saw in a newspaper shop a Linux magazine with a DVD enclosed. I think it was a DVD. This was the way to try Linux. I bought the rather expensive magazine and brought it home. This was maybe in 2006, I'm not sure. I was in luck and now was the time to go full geek. A bit late as my children were by this time in their late teens and I was way past 40. But life is learning. Um, So it was time to learn something new. And I really wanted to get out of Windows. Um, I had maybe a bit bad luck as the distro on the DVD was Gen 2. I, I had heard about Red Hat and Debian and SUSE. But I don't think I had heard of Gen 2. And I didn't have any clue what the difference were between the distros. They were all called Linux. So the difference was probably mostly cosmetic, right? I didn't know anything about window managers or desktop environments. Now, Gentoo is probably probably not the best beginner distro. I spent much time at home at that period. So I sat down at the PC in the morning and did some Gentoo stuff while my children were at school, as it was mainly their computer. Um, 
and the Gento, it was very well documented. And for the most part, I understood what to do. But I had to compile everything and it took a long time. I, I set the computer to compile and see the rush of text on the screen. And I felt like a true geek. And while that Pentium 4 PC was chugging along compiling, I did some work on a Mac or did something else in the house or something. But I finally gave up this my first Linux experience because while it was an interesting experiment, it was not that interesting for me and it was just too complicated and I had no clue that other distros worked in different ways. Uh, so, so I thought maybe it's like this in all distros. But uh, well, this Linux thing, it kept nagging um, in the back of my mind. And in late 2008, I set up as a goal to really get into this Linux thing again. And since we had two PCs at that time in the households and oh, in the household, and only one child still staying at home. I could play at being a geek again. And getting out of Windows seemed like a very good idea. And the Macs were getting a bit old and slow. And so I had heard about Ubuntu. So I downloaded it and installed it. I do not remember the version, but it had GNOME 2 on it. And I liked GNOME 2. I used Ubuntu a bit. But then I changed to Debian. I'm not sure really why, but... I did that. I knew Debian was stable and a well-aged and established distribution. And maybe it also sounded a bit more geeky. I don't know. But I also like uh, the Debian philosophy expressed in the Debian social contract. I might add that, of course, Debian is not the only ethically inclined distro out there. So... And after beginning to use Linux, I also heard about free software. And I don't know if I heard about it. I remember I tried the Firefox, the early versions of Firefox, like maybe around 2000 or something. It was called Firebird back then. But I don't think I knew what free software was. But now I bumped into this free software thing. So I started to read about it. And I realized it's very important. And maybe my experience being a very minority Mac users in what for a long period was a practical monopoly on personal computers maybe helped me appreciate the fact and the principle of free software. Not that Apple is the most free software company and I left Apple Realm years ago and I'm happy for it. I, I have some of my old Macs still for nostalgia but I don't use them. And they they make really nice computers, but I really try to keep out of that closed ecosystem. Um, in February 2009, I installed the brand new Debian version 5 Lenny, or the brand new stable Debian, I should say, Lenny. And since then, I've always used Linux. I I kept a Windows partition for a while for some applications, but I've used nothing but Linux for years now, three, four years. I I always stay with Debian as my main, but I have sometimes tried out other distros out of curiosity. Uh, On my laptop, I have at the moment Xubuntu 14.04, which is a distro I also like very much. On my Debian desktop computer, I use 
KDE. Um, well, it's all about personal preferences. We have a tremendous amount of choice and one can go for easier distros to use and install or one can go for some more demanding but maybe also configurable. It's There are distros and desktops and applications for every taste. So I'm mainly just a desktop user. I do not sit in the terminal all day and I, well, I don't sit by the computer all day either. I think the most important thing for me about Linux or GNU Linux is software freedom. I use only free software on my main machine and I recently installed OpenWRT Open WRT on my router and if I buy hardware I try to check if it works with free software. And there are of course examples where we have to use proprietary software like drivers for Wi-Fi cards or so on. But I try my best to avoid the proprietary world. And free software is a fantastic ecosystem which gives power to the users. And just imagine if say governments and municipalities had skipped proprietary software. They could have saved money and put that money on developing and sharing free software. And it could also be part of the education system. And professionals had been less tied into certain proprietary systems. It's win-win, but without the win, if I may make a little pun. Uh, and one does not need to be a geek or to be young to learn to use the basics of a free computer system. It's not that complicated. So, that's my personal computer history so far. Thanks for listening. If you for some reason want to contact me, I can be find on, found on inscius.se I-N-S-C-I-U-S dot S-E. I'm also in SKUS on quitter.se, which is an instance of the StatusNet GNU social Fediverse. And I avoid the big centralized services, so you won't find me on Facebook, as the saying goes. Uh, this is my first HPR episode, and I hope I will be allowed to contribute another one after this. HPR is a great institution and I feel proud to have contributed something little to it. And if I can do it, you can do it. Use Floss every day and see you around on the internet. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website, or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.